So we are in the uh, 27th verse. Uh, I love this story uh, uh, about what we're ready to do here today. But I, I wonder, uh, I've said this a couple times if we've uh, been in here, so I'm kind of repeating myself. But I, I wonder if you are willing today to undergo surgery. I wonder if we're willing today to undergo surgery. You know, because for you to get the surgery of whatever you're doing physically, you, you got to drive down there or have somebody drive you. And you willingly get up there and they give you the anesthesia and all that sort of thing. And then you, you let, I mean, can you hardly imagine this? You, you let a doctor cut into your body with a scalpel <laughs> and he or she fixes things that are wrong, right? Or takes things out or corrects things and uh, it's not a fun process, is it? Well, the Bible says that the thing that we're doing today, studying the Word, when you're at home by yourself, the Bible says that the word is a double-edged sword. It's not a one-edged sword. <laughs> a double-edged sword. Able to divide, right? Soul from spirit, the soulish things of life, from the real things, of, from the real spiritual things that God puts in his word. And, of course, what are we doing when we come to the word? We're trying to find who the Lord is, and His grace and mercy and goodness and kindness and justice and wrath and majesty and all these things, and, and, and we're encountering the Lord in His Word. But guess what? The Bible says that that Word does surgery. And I just feel like at this time in our nation, and starting with the house of God, that we need surgery. And I don't think it's by accident that we start out then with the calling of this guy named Matthew. He's also named Levi. That's from another gospel, but we find out his name's, or, well, it's from this gospel. The other gospel, we find out Levi's Matthew. But <clears throat> it's this tax collector. Now, where are we in the story of Luke the gospel of Luke. We're in this universal gospel. Remember this. We're in the gospel for the prince and the pauper, the moralist and the leper, from the rich and the poor, for the rich and the poor, for the person who looks like this and the person who looks like that, from the person on this side of the tracks and for a person, it doesn't matter, all are one in Christ Jesus. And Luke, the doctor, come, the physician, he comes to write about this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we've been saying, as Jesus has been called to his ministry, baptized, not that he needed to be forgiven of sins, but that he was identifying with us who need baptized. He was also legitimizing his relative, John the Baptist's ministry. But then there was another thing that happened. God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
By the way, just as a side note, all of us need to hear that. That you're his son, his daughter, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, he's well pleased with you. And as Jesus sets out in his ministry, he gets rejected in his own country or his own, excuse me, his own city. He preaches the gospel through the book of Isaiah that predicts the Messiah, written 800 or so years prior to the time that Christ was saying these words and reading these words, and says, today, in your presence, these words have come to fruition. They've been, the prophecy has come true. In other words, I'm the Messiah. He's announced. And they were cool with that in his home synagogue of Nazareth. But when he started saying that the gospel was opened up to the enemies of Israel, they wanted to kill him. So think about it, folks. The people in his home church that grew up with him they loved him. They changed his diapers. They watched him in the nursery. They, they did all these things. They were okay with saying amen to the fact that he was the Messiah, kind of. But when he said, it's open to our enemies too, they freaked. Now, you're saying, oh, that's a pretty cool story for all those 2,000 years ago. Well, uh, there's nothing quite like an election that tests one Christianity. So he goes on and he goes into another synagogue, this time in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and he has a guy stand up in the synagogue while he's teaching and starts screaming at him. He's a demoniac. He casts out that spirit, shows us that he's the Lord over the spiritual world. He goes home from church and, you know, me, I want to watch the Steelers or chill. And he's dealing with a high fever with Simon's mother-in-law. He heals the, heals the fever. And he, you know, okay, time to quit. no. The sun sets after the Sabbath, and they bring all kinds, and he just heals and touches. And we said, listen, these miracles are fantastic, but the miracles are, confirm his teaching. He's interested most in the teaching. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the Word of God. People get saved through the Word, and they will get healed. They could get healed now, but they will get healed eventually, but... The most important part is that people come to know that they're sinners. How do I know this? Because after he calls his disciples, teaching out on the lake, he cleans or cleanses a leper, which is a picture of sin. That's that sin that's underneath, the sin nature. And what does sin do? It paralyzes. And then, so what does he do next? He heals a paralytic. And he's telling us through these stories that the number one and greatest need for you and for I is for our sins to be forgiven. And last week, we looked at Psalm 38 and Psalm 51, the things that sin and the guilty conscience was doing to David. Why is there so much unrest and restlessness and anxiety in the world today? It's because people need to have their sins forgiven and be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the Ecclesiastes tell us, tells us they're just walking around. They don't even know it. 
And that's the real chief need of their heart. And so Jesus leads with that here, and Matthew writes about it, excuse me, <laughs> Luke writes about it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And now we're at the story, not just that the lepers cleanse or the paralytics can walk or that he casts out unclean spirit or that he's doing many healings or that he's called Peter, Jewish folks. Listen to this now. Come on. Come on now. This, here comes the surgery. It says in verse 27 of chapter 5 that after these things... He went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Again, we know from the other Gospels. Levi and Matthew, one and the same. Here he is, sitting at the tax office. And let's just stop there for a second. <laughs> Here he is, doing all these ministries, and, uh, you know, he has a following which he should. I mean, here's the Lord, and he's, this is his period of teaching ministry. He's teaching, and he teaches with authority and amazement, and he's healing to confirm those, those, those teachings, and, and you know, he's getting a following, and sometimes the following, listen, has certain preconceived ideas about what Christianity is. Like we're in some sort of club, and if you only listen and sound and are like me, you can be a part of the club. And Jesus, in this story, rocks that notion. See, the people he had called were fishermen, people of the lake and, you know, lived off the land. No, it's not the land. It's the sea. But they lived off the sea and worked with their hands and were, you know, those types of guys. And now he goes out to the city, and he comes across a tax collector. And as soon as you see that, it's like neon lights are going off in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something that we don't really get because we kind of get it because we live in this era, but we don't live back in that era. And if we did live back in that era and we saw the words tax collector, yeah, we get kind of a bad feeling in our stomachs from taxes, but these people really did. Now, remember, who ruled Israel at this time? Well, they heard, he ruled the entire Mediterranean area. It's the Romans. And the Romans, remember, I've said this to you a lot of times, they, they ruled a lot differently than other big kingdoms. They ruled this way. We're going to keep the people in power of the countries in power. They can run their country any way they kind of want as long as it's peaceful and respectful towards Rome. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to impose taxes. And they're going to have to pay taxes to us. And so anybody who was involved in that business, the Jewish people, especially if they were Jewish themselves, were viewed as very suspect. And may I say, they were hated. By the way... Just as a side note, remember, Jesus doesn't criticize tax collectors. If you go back to chapter 3 in verse 12, tax collectors came to him to be baptized, and he said to them, and said to them, Teacher, what shall we do? And in verse 13, he says, Hey, quit your job. You're despicable to the nation. He doesn't say that. It's incredible. He says, Don't do anything. Don't collect any more than what is appointed for you. 
In other words, tax collectors, there's a place for tax collectors under the blood of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And you go, well, come on. See, back in these times, many people, you know what a franchise is? Everybody here knows what a franchise is, right? Subway does their thing. You buy into the franchise. You run it like Subway runs it, but you're your own boss, so to speak. I mean, they are the central office. They, right? You know this. See, tax collectors who were Jewish oftentimes franchised. They were picked, and they ran their own business. And Rome would tell them, we need this amount every month or every six months or every year. We need this amount. But on top of that, they didn't care. You could run your franchise any way you wanted to run it. Your tax franchise, you had a booth, you ran it like a franchise. As long as Rome got their money and there was no uh, upsetting of the apple cart, nobody was, uh, you know, there was peace in the land, you, you did what you want. And these people often did that. So they were ripping off their own countrymen under the protection of the evil oppressor. Are you getting it? Can you see how hated this person must have been? Now, there's no evidence that Matthew or Levi was dishonest, but the perception is that he was dishonest. Get it? So, why am I taking you through all of that? <laughs> Here we go. Because somehow, some way, We're under the impression that we only have to be of a certain nature or ilk in this life in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What do I mean? Well, you need to be a member of this political party, or you're not a Christian. People say this stuff. Or you need to be a member of that political party, or you're not a Christian. Or... You worship that way? Are you serious? You, you, where are the hymn books? We don't have hymn books. Well, we do, and we hide them from you, just so you know. Here's where we hide them. We hide them at the corporate prayer time, and they come out every time. So if you complain about hymn books, we know instantly. It's a joke. Relax. Or or Whatever. You could do a million things. You do dress up. You don't dress up. See, what I'm trying to convey to you here is Jesus didn't put the label on the person. He didn't put the label on the person. Oh, my goodness, you're of that particular one, or you're that particular one. I'm not even attempting. No, 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 no. Jesus went to all kinds of people, including hated tax collectors. Now, what's funny about that is, and I'm kind of giving away the story here, is if you go over to chapter 6, verse 12, it names all the apostles. Remember, the apostles aren't the disciples. Disciples are learners or followers of Christ. Out of the disciples, 12 were picked. And this is funny, man. One who was picked was a guy named Simon the Zealot. Now, Simon the Zealot would want to put a knife 
right up under the rib cage of Levi at any cost, at any time. And I'm not exaggerating. That's what this guy was about. He was a zealot for his country. And if he perceived or their kind, their group perceived you as being unloyal to their country by getting in bed, so to speak, with the Romans, mm, hold on. And the Lord picked both of them to be his apostles. So you go back here and you say, well, after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector, a tax collector. He's named Levi, and he's sitting at the tax office, which means, do you understand, he's out there. People know him. They, they, the people in Capernaum, which is that commerce town, they know him and they despise him. Whether he did anything wrong or not, they perceive that he did And they despise him, and Jesus walks by, and he says this, follow me. Follow me. And I want you to see something that's, I don't want you to blow by, and I don't want to blow by. This dude was rich. He had to have been. He could have He owned his own franchise. He was the one picked for Capernaum to run the tax booth, the office. He's the one that negotiated, or excuse me, paid the price over to Rome, but kept anything he needed and more. He he was rich. He was wealthy. He did his thing. And, and, And the Bible says, when Jesus asked him to follow me, he left all, he rose up, and followed him. Jesus said, follow me. Now, Matthew must have heard the preaching before. Remember, in the last chapter, or in this chapter earlier, he'd been on a boat speaking to the multitudes, people up on the shore. There was being created quite a a buzz through his teaching. He was becoming famous throughout the region for what he was saying and what he was doing. And these things must have touched the heart of Matthew, Levi. And when Jesus walked by in the way that only Jesus can, folks, listen, when we have an encounter with him and he says, follow me, he's saying something that's really radical to us. He's saying something really radical. And what he's saying is, your life as you know it is over. If you follow me, The life that you live now is over. You're going to put away some things. You're going to follow me. You're going to rise up and you come on. You know, just like the fishermen, folks, it's so fascinating in the fishing story, the fisherman story. It's fascinating. Peter gets picked, right? And uh, uh, just here earlier in chapter 5, and they, they land this big catch, right? Do you remember this? But there's no evidence that they ever went and weighed the fish and got the money and did all the business. You see, because none of that became important to them anymore. As soon as they became followers of Jesus Christ, they left all. They forsook all to follow him. There was something about Jesus. There is something about Jesus that's genuine and sweet and authentic and graceful and merciful and healing and hopeful and and helpful and kind and good. And you know, under him, everything will be set right. 
and that your, word, your world comes back into order and that the things that mattered previously don't matter as, anymore. And so when he says, follow me, it's radical. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. You who uh, want life, then lose your life. If you really want real life, lose it. You'll follow me. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, he says in Galatians 2.20. It's Christ crucified who lives in me. For 10 years of my Christianity at the beginning, I never got this. So I want you to get it. I don't want you to do the mistakes I did. I learned the rules. Because I love to read and take the notes And I would learn the rules and say, oh, yes, I'm going to do these rules this week. And it was so frustrating because I could never live the rules. I've been talking a lot about John 15 where Jesus says he's the vine and we're the branches. And we're called to abide in Christ through John 15. You know this story? Let me read you something I read this morning in class. From R.A. Torrey about abiding in Christ. It's a little lengthy. It goes against public speaking, but I'm going to read it anyway. Here it comes. The sap or life of the vine constantly flowed into the branches. They had no, listen to this, the branches had no independent life of their own. Everything in them was simply the outcome of the life of the vine flowing into them. Their buds, their leaves, their blossoms, their fruit were really not theirs, but the buds, leaves, blossoms, and fruit of the vine. Renounce any independent life of our own. Let me, let me read that again. Renounce any independent life of our own to give up trying to think our thoughts or form our resolutions or cultivate our feelings and simply and constantly look to Christ to think his thoughts in us, to form his purposes in us, to feel his emotions and affections in us. It's to renounce all life independent of Christ. Did you catch that? To renounce all life independent of Christ and to constantly look to him for the inflow of his life into us and the outpouring of his life through us. That's abiding in Christ. And what God calls us to is to follow him in that way through Jesus Christ, to abide in the vine, to renounce all life independent of Christ. I wonder as I sit here, well, I don't wonder about myself. I haven't done that, folks. There's things that I hold on to that sometimes what I do is I just kind of put them away in the corners of my life so that I won't really concentrate on them, but I know that they're back there. I know that they're there. And if I just don't look at them or see them, then I won't have to deal with them. And they pop out and come out, and they rear their ugly head. It's called the flesh. And it comes out, and it's that independent living, that living independent of the Lord that really brings me to places that I don't want to be renouncing all life. Here, Jesus said, I want you to do that. I want you to follow me. And he left everything, everything. He left the cushiest, greatest economic life that you could have in Capernaum for a, for a Jewish person 
to follow Jesus Christ. That's Matthew. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. Can you hardly believe it? It must have been a great feast. He's a rich guy, and he has friends, so to speak. And there were a great number of tax collectors. Of course, tax collectors are going to come to a tax collector's party. Do you get it? Do you understand another element to hospitality? If I want to witness down at the water company, it's kind of weird because I don't have any water company friends, save one over here. But if my friend wants to witness to the water company, all he does is just call up all the contacts in the sink, come on over and have a meal. The Lord just set it up that way. But, but folks, uh, there's a couple here. You probably, and probably never would, wouldn't invite lawyers over. <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but you know what I'm saying. But see, I know some lawyers, not because I'm greater, or just what I do. And I have them in my speed dial. And I could invite the lawyers. And I probably would get more lawyers. He'd get more water company people, right? Just so practical. God is just so supernaturally natural. He just takes what you are and uses it for his glory. There's no pressure. There's no pressure. You just do where you, you just bloom where the Lord plants you. You just glorify the Lord where the Lord puts you. Here, he invites the tax collectors, of course, and others who sat down with them. He invites them over for hospitality, to have a meal, because he's so excited. Can you imagine what they're thinking compared to what Matthew's thinking? Matthew's going, yes, I found real life and satisfaction and peace, and my sins are forgiven, and I have uh, access to God through Jesus Christ, and, and, and they're thinking, he invited us over, but he's saying he's following this one guy who says he's the Messiah. He's a nutcase. What is he doing, they must be saying? Renouncing the money and the franchise and the whole setup that's going on in his life to follow the Lord? Listen, folks, what we do for the Lord, what we are living for the Lord is going to seem upside down to people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Don't worry about it. It's just the way it is. (laughs) Your citizenship is in heaven, not this world. That's where my citizenship. So he he invites them over and they sit down and they must there must be some tension here. And there, listen, he even brings over the scribes and the Pharisees, which are lawyers, law, experts in the law, scribes, the ones who write it all down and keep it safe and all that sort of thing. And the Pharisees, that pseudo-political slash spiritual party that's real conservative. He invites them over, and they've been chasing him now, and they want to see what he's saying and what he's about because they're going to shut it down. They're going to shut down Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, said, well, what are you doing? See, this is all of the, always the way of real religion. Always the way of real religion. Or excuse me, fake religion. <laughs> external religion. This is always the way when we know people are posing. They don't want to be associated with certain people. 
Now think about that. <laughs> I'd never go to lunch with a Democrat, some people say. Oh, you're saying it the wrong way, but... And see, I know what you're saying, except for... And I'm not making an example of my friend here, but that's what we think. And the Lord's called us to minister to people who don't believe like we believe. And in order to minister to people that don't believe like we believe, listen to this, folks. You need to hear their stories. What happens at a feast? You talk and you eat and you interact and people say stuff. I mean, they invite you over and they, you know, they interact and then whoom, they're going to give you an idea or an ideal or a, 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 a political stance or something that doesn't agree with yours. But you still hear their stories. You listen to them. You're allowed to listen to people without committing blasphemy. I mean, you, you hear them because Jesus hears them and, and takes them in and, and, and considers them. And he actually even eats and drinks with them. And I would ask you, I would ask you this question. You really need to answer this question for yourself, and I need to answer this question for myself. Do people who don't believe like you feel comfortable to invite you over? If they don't, we, we got problems. Now, I'm not saying compromise your witness. People ask me all the time, can I go into bars and uh, uh, share the gospel? Can I go here? Can I go there? Can I do this? Can I? Well, what this story tells you in an amazing way, because Jesus always changed the culture in the places that he went. What this story tells you is, yeah, you can go those places, as long as the culture is being changed for the Lord. But if the culture is starting to change you, don't go. But the bigger question to me is, would anybody even invite you? <laughs> hey, Matthew knows what Jesus stands for. Forgiveness of sins. Renouncing all your life for his. Even if the Lord asks you to give up the temporal pleasures of the world and come follow him, that's something you do. And he brings Jesus with all these people. Because <laughs> he knows he's going to speak the truth. But he's, hey, listen, listen. He's going to do it so lovingly and gracious, but so truthfully. Because Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. He knew the hearts of men. Go read the book of John. He knew it better than you do. He knows it better than I do. Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men. He knows it. He knows the evil that we're capable of. And I'm speaking from me first, without him in your life. He knows the evil, and he marches right in there. He goes right in there, and he sits down with them. And these people start criticizing him and saying, how, would you, how could you even associate with people like that? That's what they say right here. And he gives this answer, see, that not only tells the people directly what he's about, but he's also now speaking to Matthew, 
so that Matthew, who's going to become one of the 12, knows the agenda, the mission of the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, listen, during this time, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. It's by grace we're saved through faith, folks. But check this out. For those who think they're already righteous, grace don't come. It is there. It is there. It's available to them. But there must be a humility there. It must be a place. In other words, if you say this in your heart and mind, I don't associate with people like that, and you use it in whatever way you want to use it, think about your own. If you say that, you don't understand the mission that God's called you to. We didn't come to save the righteous. We didn't come to live in a bubble. Now listen, I'm going to go off on something. And if you're doing this, don't get your feelings hurt. You just come and talk to me after. And I'm going to make mad other Calvary Chapel pastors and other pastors. But this movement of the evangelical church, so to speak, if God's calling you to do social ministry... Don't go on a social ministry that all you hear is only your thoughts. That just might be the most anti-Christian wrong thing to do. Oh, I want to go on this site because they only talk about the things I believe. <laughs> am, am I reading the Bible right when Jesus said, I didn't come to heal The righteous, but I came to heal the sick. If you're called to social media ministry, put up the gospel of Jesus Christ every day, all day long. You don't have to combat with people. It's like a lion. It'll unleash the gospel on people right there on social media. But to go onto your own social media site and to clam up in a cocoon, you're going to say, well, Facebook censors me. Twitter censors me. Really? I've never had him one time in my whole life take down any scripture I've ever put up. Ever. Single. Wow, no, it's the same for you. It'll, they'll never take down the scripture. Just keep putting it up. Just keep putting up the word of God. Keep putting up Jesus. If that's where you're called, I'm not saying you have to be on social media. I'm saying if you are, don't go live in a cocoon. Live among the people. Who are sick. You say, well, those people don't believe what I believe. They believe in evil things. Yes, they're sinners. They're sick. But guess what? Don't think you're haughty and big. Without the Lord in your life, you're the same way. He's come to save the sick, not the righteous. Can you tell it bugs me? While we have time left here, let's do this. Let's read the Bible and get on mission. And the mission of the Lord, I'm going to butcher the quote, is like what C.T. Studd said. He, he did, and I'm totally paraphrasing and butchering this. 
He said, I didn't come to set up a comfortable church in some country club area. I came to set up shop within two yards of hell. The Lord's called CT to a shop, a, a, a mission organization, uh, sharing the gospel within two yards of hell. And where hell is, there's hellish people. Guess what? Hellish people don't believe like you believe. <laughs> but why are you surprised? Why are you shocked every night on the news? Why? Why? Don't be shocked. Is it grieving? Yes. But don't be shocked. The Lord told us he came to heal the sick, not the righteous, and we're really sick right now. Well, he goes on and he says to them, well, why did the disciples of John fast often and make prayers and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. And now Jesus is getting ready to give you several right in a row, little illustrations, parables about why his followers aren't fasting and, and, and uh, looking like they just sucked on a lemon and being so somber all the time. He said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? You understand, right? After, a, after a, in, in Jewish custom, there were different levels of uh, how you got married. There was the contract phase where the dads come together and set up the the marriage. And then there was that one-year betrothal phase where they were married, but they hadn't consummated the marriage. And then the husband went home to his father's house and fixed up the family home that he was going to live in. The new addition, if you're a contractor, well, it would have been faster. I would have been years doing this. But anyway, and they fix it up. And at some point, the father is going to tell the son, go back and get your bride. And they're going to bring them back, and there's going to be a great party, and they're going to consummate the marriage. And then for seven days after the marriage, they would invite friends over, and you were part of the wedding party to, to, to celebrate with the bride and groom. And the bride and groom, or the, or the groom, I always get them mixed up, but anyway, the groom had friends like a best man, and the bride had a friend like a maid of honor. And what their job was to do was kind of escort the friends in and out, and they attended to the celebration for the week. And Jesus says, that's what this is like. I'm the groom. I'm here now with my bride, but I'm going to go away. They will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast in those days. And then he spoke to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new ones doesn't match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Now listen, what Jesus is telling us through this entire time is that when Jesus is present, He makes life a wedding feast. He makes wise, not a funeral. He makes life a wedding feast. I've always said this. I always get in trouble for saying it. People get, but but I, I think it's true. And I think it's true. Yes, there are grieving, hurtful things that happen to people. But a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit, that's having Christ live in and through them, should be, will be, the most joyful people on earth. He came that we would have full joy, full joy, like a wedding feast. 
And then he says, listen, there are some people that are going to try and draw you back into the old ways. They're going to put a piece from a new garment. Can you imagine if you, you know, you know those old jeans that you always tried to save? And they always get holes in them, but you love them, man. It's the one you put on every Saturday morning. They just fit right, feel good. The whole shooting match, you feel comfortable. You put your, And it rips, right? And especially back in these times when they had a garment that was old and they tried to cut the new one to patch up the old one, it ruined both garments. And no one would put a new wine into old wineskins because those old wineskins, listen, listen to this. This is a... This is a big topic for people. Those old wineskins are brittle. And when the gas and the fermentation happens, they explode. And, and you know this. I mean, if, if uh, Ben Roethlisberger plays under a 10-year contract, but it's the 12th year, the old contract has gone away. You understand that? He's still playing. He's still doing the thing that he loves and the Steelers love him to do, but he's under a new contract with new terms and conditions. Everybody gets that, right? Well, why would I say that? Because Christ is here to institute the covenant of grace. Here's one example, just, just one example. It happened on the second Sabbath. Chapter 6, verse 1. After the first, that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. Circle, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? You see, under the old system... The Bible says, and by the way, it's still relevant today, but the Bible says, uh, the Exodus 20 tells us, God instituted these Ten Commandments. He said, remember Sabbath to keep it holy, right? And of course, the Jews were to keep the Sabbath. And how many days did you work? Six. And then what did you do? Rest. You had to work to rest. There you keep, wait a minute. Don't, don't go to sleep here. Many people still work the rest. And here, this story is put in here to illustrate what's going on. Under the old system, oh yeah, we know we're not supposed to work. But then a man-made tradition built up around that commandment. And it was stuff like this, don't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Friday night to uh, Saturday night, don't, don't spit on the ground because that could be made into clay and that's working. You can even go out on the internet now and see what workings on the Sabbath, all these man-made traditions, books upon books, rules upon rules about what work was and what wasn't. You could walk a certain length of uh, time but, or certain number of steps, but if you've crossed over to one more step, you were working. So some people would actually have a rope and they would tie it near their house or their abode. And they, if they went past that, they were working. But as long as they worked in the yard or whatever, it was fine. I mean, it's ridiculous stuff going on. You can get in the elevator but not punch the button type of stuff. And Jesus hated this. And he said, you know, that's, you're going to burst under this system. And he bursts it right here. 
this thing happened on this Sabbath. You see, these people, the controversy isn't that they stole something. You get this, right? Under the Levitical law, the crops at the corners of a field were left open so that when you came by, you could grab some and you were supposed to as the owner of the field. Keep it open. It was like their welfare system. You just get it, or if you're hungry on your way, take it. No problem, which is weird because they were walking on the Sabbath. But it's not stealing to go through the corners. What was happening here is they're rubbing and doing something and preparing food, and you weren't supposed to do that on the Sabbath. And these people are mad. People that are questioning him, people at the party, like, what are you, like, like people who were at the party, what, what are you doing? He's always being watched. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus, come on, folks, here, here's the sermon. Here it comes. <laughs> I mean, this is almost too hard to believe that he would say this. It would like be asking me if I liked Ohio State. He says, do you even read this? Think about it. These people are the scribes. They know it perfectly. They don't have one cross T or dotted I. There's nothing out of order. They know the Bible better than any of us. They know it dead. I mean, they know it. And the Pharisees who are so orthodox and conservative and all these rules have been built up around man-made traditions, Jesus said to them, almost too hard to believe, have you even read this? Which means there was something amiss with their reading and studying. Which tells you, you can know the Bible and not know Jesus. <laughs> See, the church needs to hear this. Have you even read this? Jesus says. What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and took and ate the showbread. Actually, showbread is kind of a weird way. It's actually S-H-E-W in the King James. It, that word means the presence, the bread of presence. That's what this means. It's not that it's showy or it's being put out for a show. It's in the presence of the Lord. Are you getting this? And David and his men who were fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel 21 1 through 6 came and ate that bread and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> in other words, Jesus said, I have authority to know if the Sabbath was broken, because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I'm God. That's what he just said. It's staggering. To them, it would be staggering. So we have people who are still living under the law. Now, why did I tell you about six days and then rest? Because when does the church meet? Does they meet on the Sabbath day? Nope. Sabbath's Friday night to Saturday night. We meet on the first day of the week. You, you want to write this down and never forget it. <laughs> you see, because we're under the new covenant. Listen, folks, listen. We rest at the beginning, and now we get to work all week. 
It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. You need, I need, we need to rest in the Lord all the time, every day. We should be Sabbathing all the time. He's our rest. He's our peace. Is it good to take a day and just devote it to the Lord? Of course, we're doing it today, man. But that's the difference between law and gospel. Law is work, 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 and maybe you'll get to rest. Gospel is rest. And he gives you the ability and the resource to work. Wow. He's coming to do something new. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He even he exercises authority even over the rules and regulations that man has established to govern Sabbath day. Isn't that amazing? And he's saying to us, it's always good to do good to people. People matter more than ritual, folks. People matter more than ritual. Whatever is blocking that for you or for us should not be. Now, it happened on another Sabbath, verse 6 that he entered the synagogue and taught. Man, just over and over again, he just keeps teaching and preaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely. Isn't that sickening? I want you to think about that. Here's a man who's embarrassed. Some have said... without being too graphic, that you used your left hand for something to clean up about, personally. I'll just leave it at that. So you would never offer your left hand to somebody. Not that it's bad to be a left-hander, Mark. It's not bad to be a left-hander, but you understand, you, you wouldn't offer your left hand. It's disrespectful. So the thing that you could do is you could offer your right hand. But in this case, he couldn't offer his right hand. And extra-biblical sources, historians, tell us that this guy was a builder. So he'd lost his ability to greet people or to come around people and to be respectful, and he lost his ability to work. He shot out. And these sick religious people care more about the regulation than they do about the hurting guy. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man, look, catch this, who had the withered hand. We talked about this last time. He says, uh, he, we talked about this with the guy with the leprosy. He says to the guy with the lip withered hand, arise and stand here. <laughs> now, here's another thing you just got to scratch your head about. Arise and stand here. And he rose and stood, and Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? I mean, you just Look, he brings him up and he just has him stand there right in a circle. He says, I, I want, now before we begin here, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Man, they're in a pickle now. Uh, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, can you imagine that look? 
when he had looked around, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, now, folks, put yourself in the position of the man. Put yourself in the position of the man. Put, put yourself there. What would you have a tendency to say? In your mind, really? Seriously? In front of all these people, you're going to fail here, huh, Jesus? Because my hand's withered. And I'm an outcast, and I feel bad about it. I can't offer people this hand. I can't offer people that hand, and I feel bad. But he says, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Here's the sick part. They're mad. Not just mad, they're in a rage. And they discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Religious people. What do externally religious people do? They hate you when you live for the Lord in a spirit-filled way. They like the committees and the running around and the stuff that is good if you rest first and work later, but they work first and rest later. And he says to this guy, stretch out your hand, and here, we'll, we'll close on this point. I don't want you... To ever miss this, I'm going to take you to two scriptures, one New Testament, one Old Testament. Go to 2 Corinthians 1.20. Uh, I've preached this here before, but I want you to hear this one more time. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Uh, many of you know the verse. You probably can quote it. For all the promises of God in him are yes... And in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. You heard that verse before? Well, what does it mean? <laughs> Jesus has given you the green light on all of his promises. Do you catch that? In Jesus, all the promises are, yes, go for it. <laughs> because I stand behind my promises. But you have to agree. You have to say amen. You getting what I'm saying? Like, for instance, just, just turn over real quick. We aren't, turn back to Leviticus, or excuse me, Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use him, use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and everyone of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And uh, just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. By the way, uh, I won't read the whole thing, but if you keep going here, I caught something this morning. I just struck me. I never really caught before. Verse 35, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, this is a matter of, of dire uh, urgency. And here's the thing I missed. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. <laughs> Do you know people in your life who are unthankful and evil? The Bible says you have the mind of Christ if you're a follower of Christ. Now catch it, folks, catch it. You're loving the promise. Oh, you love the promises. I'll be a son of God if I'm in Christ. Yay! 
But a mark of the Son of God is a forgiving spirit and one who, even when they get reviled, still loves. So what a lot of people say is, what great promises, but I ain't doing it. No, we don't say it that way, but we do say it. You mean I have to love him? You mean I have to love her? All the promises in Jesus Christ are yes, green-lighted. You want real life? Lose yours. You uh, want to have eternal life? Take up your cross, which means you're dead to self. You're going to renounce all self. What happens if he asks you to love people who hate you? Who hate you? Will you say amen? See, at the point in which you say amen, right then he gives you the ability to do it. You catching it? I can't love her. I've been, you know, I've been with her for 20 years, but she's, oh my goodness. Really? The Bible calls you to live in understanding. Can't you, you ask me to forgive her? You, you don't know what she said when you get to the you don't know what she, you're, you're not saying Amen. One other scripture, God was teaching Israel this, the people of God this in Joshua chapter 3. You want to go there and we'll finish. In Joshua chapter 3, God was teaching this from the very beginning to the nation of Israel. He says to, in verse 5, is this is when Israel's crossing the Jordan, a momentous occasion, right? I'm calling you to something really big. I've called you out of Egypt, all two to three million of you. You've camped in the wilderness. It should have taken just months. It took you 40 years. We're now getting up. We're going to get, and we're going to go across. And he does something really unusual. He says to, Joshua says to the people, sanctify yourselves for the tom- tomorrow the Lord's going to do wonders among you. And then verse six, Joshua spoke to the priests saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. Of course, priests, get it, take up the Ark, uh, cross over, right? Cross over the waters before the people. We want to make sure that the presence of the Lord is first and foremost leading us and guiding us and in our presence. We don't want to do anything without the uh, uh, presence of the Lord, right? That's what he's saying there. Catch this though. Watch this. Watch this. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And listen, the Lord now chimes back in to Joshua. And he says, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel, that you may know that as I with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests. Now think about this if you're the priests. Who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you've come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, here's what I would have thought the Lord would say. The waters will part and you'll walk right across. He doesn't say that. He actually says, you priests, go stand in the water. In other words, do you really believe me? Or are you just playing? Think about it. You got ark on your back. You're with other guys. That's uncoordinated. And he says, I want you to go down the little, you know, the, the bank there, and I want you to get in the water. I, I would have been praying this. Lord, before we get to the bank, part the waters so I can see where I'm going. The Lord said, no, I'm giving you a promise. Now go stand in the water. 
And here Joshua says in verse 9 to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you. And behold, verse 11, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Look in verse 13, and we'll stop. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off that come down from the upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. But they had to stand in the water. (laughs) Folks, we love the promises. But if we're not willing to say, okay, I'll do it, nothing's going to get healed. Nothing's going to get healed. So I'm just asking, I'm saying, what is it in your life you love a promise about? <laughs> what is it in my life we, I love the promise about, but I've been saying, mm, I love that you've saved me by the blood of your son, but I'm not so sure about that one. <laughs> I don't think I can do it. Don't miss out. Let me just read this here to you. You know, us Christians can think we're really high and mighty. And, you know, it's our way or the highway. And if you don't agree with me, then get out or don't be in my gang. I just want to read you something from Romans 15. We then, verse 1, who are strong. By the way, when Paul writes about people who are strong, he writes that people who are strong are the ones who are willing to bend. Not bend on doctrinal issues that are core to the Christian life. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But to bend over for others, to bend to others. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, people who are less bendy, less flexible, and not to please ourselves. But here's the problem with the American church. We won't say amen here. Oh, what a great idea. That would be cool. But when it comes to politics or you don't think my way or uh, wear a mask, I ain't bending. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this day and thanks for your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. Lord, that you would... Give us joy and peace and strength because we've been saved and our sins are forgiven. We're no longer lepers and we can move in freedom. We're not paralyzed. Lord, help us to know your promises, know you through your promises, but also, Lord, to say amen and we agree to your promises so that you would do the healing 
and the rework and the rebuilding and the edifying in our lives and in the lives of others. And help us, Lord, to share your love and your gospel with many others. Remember, writing it on our hearts, Lord, that we are not here. You're not here, and your agenda is not to save the righteous, but to heal the sick, of which I personally am the sickest, and I appreciate, Lord, your grace and mercy. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys, and have a great week. And we're going to go celebrate a little bit, and we're going to baptize our friend Fred, and we're going to pack some shoeboxes and bless others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.